0: This message also may be a deterrent to whether or not you want to have children. Uh, if you have children too late, don't you can't do anything about that. Don't leave them anywhere. Uh, be sure and take them home today with you. But it's really a, a message, call it a reality check, if you will, where I want you to really dive deep into your parenting. Skills, your parenting attitudes, your parenting looks and values. You're not, you're not ready to be a parent just because you can make a baby. You're ready to be a parent when you can raise an adult. When you can have children and help them to navigate through this world. This message, in some respects, may be the best birth control method uh, that you could have today. Just by the warnings that I want to give you today, I'm not trying to deter anything that God may want to do in your family, but as so well said and articulated in his book, James Dobson, who I think is the guru of parenting, whenever he said this, he said, parenting isn't for cowards. And if you're getting into this just because the mother inside of you wants to come out because you want to raise up the next great person on planet Earth, dad, uh, to conquer the world's problems, and that's why you're going into parenting, get ready, it's not for cowards. Uh, You need to really understand what you're getting into. In this book, he even highlights a 35,000 parent study asking them, what do you feel about your parent? One in three of them feel, virtually one in three feel like they're failing as parents. That they're not making it. They're not, they're not at the grade that they, that they feel like they need to be at as parents. And so a little bit of this you may be in. In fact, I'll just say maybe one in three in the people of parents in this room right now are scratching their heads saying, what am I going to do with adolescence? What am I going to do with the terrible twos? Forget adolescence. You know, you're struggling with some of this. You try to get on the same page as your spouse or as, uh, as the other parent and you're trying to get there, but you're not there. How do you do that and raise them in a chaotic, crazy world? Typically, I have found that most parents think they just kind of go along, they just kind of get along until tragedy comes. This is a series of messages that again is moving away from the ideal that you're just living in this, uh, uh, this ignorance, you're just living in this existence and your children are going to pop out on the other side and they're going to be beaver cleaver families. Not going to be that way automatically. It's an intentional parenting that we're aiming at here, not the ideal parents. So not trying to burst any bubbles, but we are trying to raise the bar on ourselves being more intentional about what we are doing. We do need to be fruitful and multiply the earth as as God instructed us. And I do hope that your children become statesmen, that we can send them to Washington. That They become police officers and first responders that will serve our communities and protect our communities. I hope that your children are the ones that will discover the cure for the god-awful cancer that are out there. I would hope that our children, your children, the next generation would come up with some of those answers that our generation hasn't come up with. And so moving to that, though, we've got to face the music Parenting isn't easy. It's not for cowards. Uh, and, and I'll tell you right now, when you look at the Bible, there's not a whole lot of good examples. There's not a whole lot of families. When you look in the narratives of finding that, that perfect family, you go to the very first family in the Bible, Adam and Eve, and you find them just outside the gates of Eden where you find Cain and Abel warring with each other. And Cain kills Abel. And, and so you have the first homicide in the Bible being that of a sibling. So a family rivalry of, talk about, uh, problems in the, among your siblings. There's, there's a, the first one happens in scripture, uh, in the families of of the Bible, just, just really removed from the Garden of Eden. You go to, you go to David and you find this great king this great warrior you find this great man of god and yes he messed up in his life as we all mess up in ours and god redeemed him and all that but you find the very first civil war of the nation of israel happened when absalom his son divided the king divided the uh, the nation and warred against each other in an attempt to overthrow dad david you talk about teenage rebellion that's it at an epic proportion. Whenever you find civil war coming out of that at that time. Now, even in Jesus' family that he grew up in, can you imagine growing up in that family? What what pressure would be on that family? They even left Jesus, forgot Jesus, left him in the temple. So there's no perfect families out there. In fact, I want to see if any parents in this room, have you ever left your kids somewhere? All right, raise your hand. Okay, a few. All right? Lori and I have done it twice. We're per- perfect at it. We actually did it twice to the same child. All right? So, Caleb, if you're listening to this, don't feel offended. We do love you. But we left him twice, I thought. She had him, and I th- she thought I had him. And all of a sudden, we get home, and neither of us had him. And so we were able to find him, and he was brought to us and all that kind of good stuff. But uh, even Jesus, I mean, they get all the way from Jerusalem back home to Nazareth. And Joseph looks at Mary. Mary looks at Joseph. Joseph, I thought you had him. Now I thought you had him. And all of a sudden, he's nowhere to be found. And they go back and they find him in the temple. So when you look at scriptures and you're looking for that perfect home, you're not going to find it. In fact, there's another story in scripture, narrative in scripture that I want us to unpack a little bit today. And that's in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when Eli. Eli did not fare much better than the other examples Though Eli was a good man, he lived to be—excuse uh, me—he lived to be uh, 98. He uh, he uh, was the high priest of Israel for for some 40 years. He was a very, very, very important figure. Actually, he helped to raise Samuel, who, of whom this book is written after the book of First Samuel that we're looking at today. And so, Samuel was the last judge of the judges' period before the first king, Saul, came into existence. And who raised him? Eli raised him. Eli helped raise him in kind of a boarding school slash prophet school kind of scenario. He was actually the, the son of Elkanai and, and, and Hannah. We're not actually going to deal with that story. It's a beautiful, powerful story uh, to look at. But we're not going to. We're going to look at the story of Eli. And not Eli and Samuel, but Eli and his two boys. His two boys were a little bit different. Now, Eli lived to be 98 years old in a really strange accident. Falls out of a chair at 98. And the Bible says he was quite heavy, evidently, and he broke his neck and he died. So kind of a horrible, tragic kind of story that unfolds there. But when you come to the sons of uh, of Eli, that had to have killed his heart many years before. Hophni was one of the sons, and uh, Phineas was the other son. And in this four chapters of 1 Samuel, the very first four chapters, you see Eli, you see Hophni, and you see uh, uh, Phinehas uh, living out their life. And you see this generational right next to each other, but you see this gap in belief. And here's a warning I want us all to hear today. I think it is awesome and great that you're here. Some of y'all have children, and you drop them off in our children's ministry before you, before you enter this room. Some of y'all have teenagers, and they'll, they'll be back tonight for, body, for, for their small groups, and they'll be back on Wednesday night for their worship time. And you really make sure that they make it to the camps and the mission trips that we offer around here. And that's all really good, but it's not enough. In fact, there's no free tickets. From one generation to the next generation, Christianity, the faith, the relationship with God can be lost very quickly. And let me just show you, just in the life of Eli the high priest, high priest for 40 years, and how the very next generation, it all falls apart. In First Samuel chapter 1, verse 9, you find that Eli was the priest, it says. He was the high priest, again, for 40 years. But you go to chapter 2, verse 12, and you find the sons of Eli were worthless men. Worthless. In fact, one translation says they were wicked. Now, just stop there for a moment. How is it that you can be the son of the high priest, working, serving, working right along, daddy in the temple? How is it that you can be taught the scriptures? How is it that you can go literally from being a high priest in one generation and wicked and worthless in the next generation? How is that? And that should be the warning to all parents in this room today, that we have to really evaluate how well is this generation helping the next generation walk with God? Not know about God, not just know things about God, but really walk with God. Because it only takes one generation being negligent, passive, and the next generation suffers. We're going to find out some things about Eli that he was missing in his own parenting But real quickly, I want us to hit some of these four danger signs. And you have to evaluate your own family to say, do I have any of these danger signs in my home that I need to deal with now before it's too late? And maybe all, maybe some of you will feel like it's too late because your children are out of age or they're just not responding to you, they're not listening to you. And we can talk about ways to kind of uh, do intervention in that, but let's just kind of look at signs today. And let's... Deal with case by case, situation by situation, uh, as we can, one on one, or in other situations that I'll, I'll mention to you. But first of all, I want us to see the sign that happens in this, in this Eli to, to the next generation that happens here. And the sign is this, is that the faith of this generation becomes missing in the next generation. And again, it might be easy to think that, hey, I've dropped them off at church. You're doing your job. I'm doing my job. I'm here in worship. They're over there. They're getting the download for the week. And we're all going to go home and we're going to call that good. We're going to call that spiritual. We're going to call that a godly home because we went to church on Sunday morning. And that's going to be good enough. I want you to think deeper than that. Because the reality is that if your child does not enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm not making this up, this came from research, that 85% chance that they will not receive, they will not follow Christ if they do not first receive Christ by the time they're 18 years of age. You are living in a window of opportunity. We are living in a window of opportunity with our children. That we cannot neglect, we cannot be passive, we cannot just assume, we cannot think, We've got to know. We've got to know. We've got to see. We've got to assess. We've got to evaluate. We've got to be aggressive. We've got to be active. We've got to be involved. All those kinds of words must describe our parenting when it comes to transferring the faith. Because all the programs that we can offer will not make sure your children have Christ in their life, in the next generation. We can offer the best programs. We can take them to the best camps. We can take them on mission gatherings around the world or global adventures around the world, and we can expose them to all manner of things, and that will help. What we are good at at Grace Point Church are creating environments. We can create an environment in which you, hopefully as a parent, can help nurture and bring your children along to a deeper faith with Christ, but we can't do it all. We will do what we can do but you as a parent must own your role in the spiritual formation of your own children. If you have your bibles look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 12 and we find this continuing statement about the boys. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. What does it mean to know Him? What does it mean to know about Him? There is a vast difference between the two. What is the difference between knowing about Him? I have to believe, because it says here in this word, that they did not know Him. But at the same time, hold on, they're they're servants in the temple, it refers to them, as being servants in the temple. How is it that they could not know God? I mean, their their father is the high priest. Are, Are you saying, writer, historian, uh, 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 First Samuel that they literally did not know Yahweh's name. No It's much deeper than that It wasn't that they didn't know about God many of your kids today could go home and tell you about God You could go home today and tell your spouse about God You can go around this world and tell people about God, but we're not talking about knowing about God We all know enough in this room just enough to be dangerous at times about God That's not what this word is This word no Is a much deeper word than that It's actually the Hebrew word "yada." Now, when you understand the word "yada" in the Hebrew, you'll understand that it is not knowing about God that he's talking about, that these boys were missing in their life, that they did not yada. they did not know God on a much intimate level, on a deeper personal level, on a non-religious level, but a relationship level. There was a deep intimacy that they were missing. They had religion, they did not have relationship, they did not have an intimacy with God. In fact, this word "yada" is the same word in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 that is used of Adam knowing Eve. Now use your own imagination with that one. How well did Adam know Eve? That was when their children were born. It is an intimate phrase. Do your children, do you intimately know God? Or is God at arm's length? Is God something you think about on the on a crisis moment? Is He something that you bring into the family conversation when you're making a decision after you've made a bad decision? Or is He on the very front side of that conversation? This is, I know, hey, listen, 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 listen. This is very subjective. This is something that you're going to have to really kind of pause for just a moment. And if you're not willing to pause, and if you're not willing to listen, and if you're not willing to evaluate, then I'm going to say something here that may offend you, but I doubt if you know God. Because the God that we're to know, the way that we're to know God, the level of intimacy we're to have with God is the same way and the same depth and the same vulnerability and the same transparency that a husband and a wife know each other. Do you know God at that level? Another time this word yada is used is in Exodus chapter 33 verse 17 when God is talking about his relationship with Moses. The Lord said to Moses, for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. It's not that I just know all, I just know you Moses, but I know you. I know you by name. I know your intimacy. I know you intimately. I know you in vulnerability. I know you in a very personal way. I, God wants a personal relationship with you. He wants a personal relationship with your children. You have to say, am I in a personal relationship with God or am I at arm's length with God? Are my children drawing closer to God? Am I nurturing that? Am I bringing that along? Or am I not? There's a vast difference between the two, but the difference is religion or relationship. And the way you can measure those out and stake those out is something like this. Religion is about rules and regulations. Relationship is about love and respect. Do you obey God because of what He told you to do? The Ten Commandments, don't do this, do this. Because if you do that, then you'll have this bitter taste in your mouth that God's all about do's and don'ts. Or do you obey Him out of love and respect for Him? That God is looking out for the very best in me and my children. The difference is between whether or not you know about God or you know God. Submit without understanding. I'm just going to do it because I've been told to do it. Or you submit in faith and trust. You live a life of regret if you're living a life of religion. Oh, I wish I could do that, but my church won't let me do that. And you kind of live in this kind of bitter angst between you and God and the church. And you don't like Christians and you got this kind of bitter taste. Or you have this confidence that this is the best path to take. I've tried some of the other paths. This is the best path. I know that God is looking out for me. Religion's hard and cold, where relationship will embrace and nurture. Which one of those most accurately describes you and how well you know God? Which one of those best describes your relationship or your children's relationship? Lori and I dated for five years before we got married. Now, I felt like we had a good dating relationship. We, we had a God honoring dating relationship. It was all good. And for five years, we had arguments. We had breakups. We were together. We had all the things that everything would go through. We played out scenarios in our mind. How many children do you want to have? How are you going to discipline the children? We played it all out. We had five years to develop a relationship. And I felt like after five years, she knew me. I knew her and we could really, we could make this marriage gig work. And y'all have heard our story. We fought for the first year and a half of our marriage like to kill each other. So what happened? We got married. And when we got married, what we thought we knew, we didn't know. But now we do know there's a level of vulnerability. There's a level of accessibility. There's a level of intimacy when you're in a marriage. Some of you in this room are dating God. You know, you like God and you're going to claim yourself to be a Christian. But you got God at an arm's length. You're not married to Him. You're not vulnerable, intimate. You're not personal and real. And if you want to teach your children, model it. Live it out before them, an intimate relationship with God. And watch the next generation get it. If you don't, they will only grow deep as deep in their relationship with God as you are. Let's move on to number two, danger sign. When the holy becomes common, and I'll even say this, even a personal entitlement. When we begin to shift this world into believing that it's what I can have and what I can get and what's rightfully mine, and we start taking and and all this. And so I want to read some verses to you just to kind of show you this. Uh, As is custom in verse 13, the custom of the priest with the people was that when a man offered sacrifice, the priest-servant would come while the, man, while the meat was boiling and with three prongs and a fork, and, and he would thrust it into the pan, the kettle, the keldron, and the pot, and all that the fork brought up, and the priest would take for himself. This is what they did in Shiloh. which Shiloh was about eight miles, I think, north of Jerusalem. That was where they worshipped at that time. And, uh, and so they... Uh, they uh, they they would stick their, their this fork in there and whatever meat would come out after it's been offered and sacrificed to God, then that's what the priest could eat. The, the, the priest that's how they would feed their families. God set a system up like that for a lot of years ago. To this day, God enables us to do ministry as a pastoral team because we are able to be given a share of what has been given to God in worship. It's been that way, it's even affirmed that way in First Corinthians nine today. So but that's not what they were doing. These boys saw what was being brought to the temple to be sacrificed to God as theirs. And they just started taking it. They just started. In fact, if you didn't give it to them, they would forcibly take it from you. So what was holy and to be set apart for God all of a sudden becomes common and mine. And it's, you can't have it. And, and it's my life. And it's, it's, it, that's my meat. And I want the meat with the fat on it. They start claiming it as their own. Verse 16 and 17. It says, And if a man said to him, Let me burn the, uh, the fat first, then take it as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And not uh, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men, the the boys of Eli was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. When we treat the things of God, the things that God calls holy, with contempt, it's mine, it belongs to me, it has this kind of mockery to it. It has this kind of blasphemy to it. It has this kind of joking with God that, listen, what you call holy, I call mine. Where am I going with this? What are some things in our own life that God calls holy but we call common? Or we have made common. We may not call it that. I'm afraid sometimes Sunday becomes just that. It's just, it becomes another day in the week. It becomes, instead of a holy day, it becomes a family day. And we almost worship family over worshiping God, and we'll come to that in a, in a moment. I, I think sometimes when it comes to the tithe, you know, we have this sense of entitlement. It belongs to me, so therefore it's mine and, and I'm not gonna give it I'm not gonna give it over. It comes to our choices, and we and we make our own choices and we choose our own ways. Listen, let's do this. Let's give God the first dime out of every dollar, the first part out of every day, the first day out of every week, the first consideration out of every decision. Let's put God and let Him be the holy one of our lives, and not our family agendas or schedules or ways of doing things. What have we taken that God has called holy for Him and made it for ourselves? Number two, or number three, we lose a moral compass. Hoffnai and, and Finnis were, were guys that, that, that went off, off the radar whenever it comes to having a sense of moral direction, right and wrong. Sexuality becomes something you play with you don't savor and protect. Did you hear me? Sexuality becomes something you play with, not something you cherish and protect. When you find in verse 22, you find these boys doing something, abuse of powers, you can call it that. He said, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. Don't you know that broke his heart? to all of Israel, and how they would lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the Tent of meeting. We realize we live in a culture that is sexually overcharged. If you read the USA Today this past week on Friday, the, the the cover story, go find an old copy of them, they're still out there. The The cover story was about the sexually charged culture in which we live, that everything is sold by that. We live in a day whenever when sexuality is everywhere played out before us, and we as parents sometimes stick our heads in the sand thinking it's not happening to my kids. Listen, if we don't talk to our children... And help them establish a good moral compass. If we don't talk to them about sexuality, we are going to miss it as parents. Because if we don't talk to our young girls about sexuality, a pimpled-faced boy will. And if we don't talk to our young men about sexuality, there's plenty of sites to Google and get free information. And you can do it in so many ways. We've got so many instruments. Kids play on these. Kids have phones like like these. They have computers. And we as parents many times just think it couldn't be happening to my kids. It is happening at an ever younger age. We would have thought it would never have happened to our kids until one of our kids was told where to find it by another of his friends. Well, how, how do you deal with that? It's all out that we're going to have to have conversations, not a conversation with our kids. We're going to have to create conversations. We're going to have to look for conversations. The effects of pornography in the, in the, in the mind of a person are comparable to the effects of cocaine in the minds of a person. Where well, you've got to have it. You've got to have more of it. You can't get enough of it. And it just is ongoing. We're going to be offering... A class this evening, a couple of classes this evening, that I would really encourage this afternoon. Sex ed in the 21st century, you've heard me talk about it. I can't say it enough. I'm hearing from counselors in our church and outside of our church. It is one of the largest growing demands in their counseling ministries. We have two fully trained counselors that will be here at 3 o'clock this afternoon to help you talk Parents, get your head out of the sand to help talk with you about this subject. Boundaries. Man, what what about setting up some healthy guardrails in this life? You traveled some of these roads. You traveled the pig trail. You traveled over to Eureka Springs. Man, thank God for guardrails. They're not just to constrain you and keep you on the asphalt. They're to save your life. What about how to guide and direct our children through discipline? This is out there. In fact, throw up the next slide. There's a QR code. If you have a smartphone, zap that sucker right now and you can sign up for it. Listen, there's nothing to gain. I have nothing to gain from selling you on this. This is the truth of this is that we're offering this for free from what you have said. These are big issues that we're struggling with or that I feel like are out there. And this is just one of our parenting universities. We'll have another one in November. And we're bringing in the best in our area. To help teach you as parents on this. Not to take advantage of this is a tragedy. We have learned that as, as parents of, well, now one young adult, 21, one 19, and, uh, is he Eight, 19. and um, if they wouldn't change every year, I would remember that. Um, and then a 14 year old, that we don't have a conversation, we have lots of conversations. We regularly bring up the topic, how are you doing, what are you thinking about, what are you going through. I'm real and transparent about my own struggles. Lori talks about what she went through as a child growing up, what she faced in her own temptations. How did we win and how did we fail? These are conversations you've got to have for your kids because if not, it's going to be a pimple-faced boy in the back seat of a car that will do it. It will be guys in the locker room. It will be on the Internet. It's all out there. It's all available. Guys, we're going to have to help our children. And Eli, God, listen to this. This is the sad thing. Eli was hearing this secondhand. He was so disengaged from his own kids. He was hearing what was going on with his kids. He was not involved with his kids. Which leads me to the the final danger sign. We practice child-centered parenting over God-centered parenting. Beware. Your children don't come first. Not even your spouse comes first. God comes first. Otherwise, it becomes idolatry. Beware that. That we don't get sucked into believing that, okay, uh, family first and and we're going to put all these activities because we need more activities in our life. Listen, beware that you don't get sucked into believing that because that is good that you're valuing family, but it is not great. If you will value first your relationship with God first and foremost above all other relationships, then that will be what is impactful. If you look at verse 27, you find where... Eli, who was the high priest for 40 years, the man of God uh, uh, of the land and of uh, of the place. And it says in verse 27, it says, "And and there came a man of God. Now, we don't know who this is. It was an anonymous man of God who came to the man of God and helped enlighten him about his own children. And let me just say this, every man of God needs a man of God in their life. I need people in my life who will speak truth into my life. You need people, I don't care how good and godly you are, who will come to you and say, hey, you're not on track here. Men, women, women, you need to be with women. Men, you need to be with men. You need people who will speak truth into your life. And here's a man, we don't know who he is, but he comes to Eli, and he said to him, thus the Lord has said. He confronts him. He gets all up in his business. And what does he say to him? How does he confront him? In verse 29, and when, and then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command? Now he's speaking here first person as if God is speaking to him. He says, and honor your sons above me. And honor your sons above me. Here's a dad who's disconnected. Here's a dad who's the high priest. Here's a dad who's a pastor, you can call it today. But he is more honoring of his sons than he is of God. And he goes on to say, for those who honor me, I will honor. The problem is we have shifted in our culture to where we have become child-centered and not God-centered. And we kind of give some kind of self, kind of soothing kind of... Feel about that, but there's great warning in that If we will put God first, let's put it like this I don't love Lori more than I love God I don't love my children more than I love God I keep him first and foremost And the great thing happens that when I love God first Honor him first above my children, above my wife Above everything else, then guess what happens I love my children more I love my wife better I'm a far better man. I'm a far better husband. But if I ever get it out of culture, then all of a sudden passivity, ignorance will slip in. A lot of things will slip in. And here's what happens when you come to this passage of Scripture. Go down to, or you can just jot it down, in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, I am going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons defiling the sanctuary. Again, this is Eli knowing about what his sons are doing, and he has not stopped them. He has not stopped them. Let me give you a great warning today. Parents, passivity, ignorance, compliance, not having a real clear foundation on who's the God of the home, will run and wreck the next generation. You don't believe me? Let me just close by this. Completing the rest of the story. Listen, I couldn't make this stuff up. I could not make it up. What happens in chapter three and four is there's a war between the Philistines and, and, and the people of Israel, and the Ark of the Covenant is stolen by the Philistines. And, and uh, Hophni and his brother go out after 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 it, and they get slaughtered. Another crew gets slaughtered. It's a massive uh, death camp around Israel. And Eli hears the story, he falls over and breaks his neck and dies. And one of his sons was married and had a son. She was pregnant at the very moment. And she hears about this. And she goes into premature labor. It's all I couldn't make it up. It's all in chapter 4. You read it for yourself. And when she falls over and is about to die herself, father-in-law dies, brother dies, brother dies, now, mother's dying, the son will end up living. And she names him before he before she dies. She called him Ichabod. Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? The glory of God is departed. In that generation, what had happened in that day, because of the digression... Is the glory of God had departed Israel had departed that family? It was a god-awful moment, a horrible day, a horrible, horrible circumstance that happened because one generation didn't make sure the next generation knew God. There is a bright spot for Samuel chapter 2, verse 26, just to kind of go full circle from last week's message. It talks about Samuel and how he grew. He was the bright spot in the nation. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. If you were here last week, you heard last week's message. How did Jesus grow? He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. How did Samuel grow? He grew in stature and in favor with God and with man. How are your children going to live? What will the next generation, what will be said of the next generation? That you're parenting and I'm parenting, will it be written across that generation? Ichabod. The glory of God's departed. Or will it be written across that generation? They are growing with wisdom, they're growing in stature, they're growing with favor, with God and with man. Would you pray with me? Do you know God today? Personally, intimately, personally, deeply, vulnerably? Are you in a transparent kind of relationship with Him? Listen, He wants to know that kind of relationship with you. He wants to be in that kind of deep, personal, intimate relationship. So before we talk about any more about our children knowing God, the generation being lost, the moral compass that's being trampled on and all that's happening in the next generation, let's talk about this generation. Who are you in relationship with God? I don't want to, I'm not coming hard on you. I'm coming straight at you. And I want to embrace you. I want to encourage you as God is. To know Him. To yada Him. Intimately, personally. I want to pray for you right now. I want to pray that you know Him at that level. Father God, we bow before You. No playing games. No being religious here. Being real. Authentic. Lord, You're not hard-edged and abrasive. You are warm and embraceful You show love and grace, grace and truth, mercy and acceptance. And Lord, if there's anybody who does not know you in this room, I pray that they right now in their heart of hearts would cry out to you and say, Lord, I give my life to you. I follow you from now on, Lord. Take away my past and Lord, help me to move into the future. With confidence and faith. And Lord, help my children to be there with me. Help me to know how to walk with you and to help them walk with you. Lord, be our God today. Be our Savior today. Be our Father today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing with us? Would you do business with you and your heart with God right here and right now? I'm hanging out at the front. Lori's hanging out at the front. We're available. Caleb and Amanda Gabrelli are over here. If we can pray with you, walk with you any way we can, we're here.